Hello, and welcome to PW's LitCast, a podcast from Publishers Weekly. In each episode, we speak with authors of both fiction and nonfiction books. I'm Lenny Picker, and today I'm speaking with author David Hewson, whose The Savage Shore is being published by Severn House, the sponsor of today's podcast. Hello, David. Hi, Lenny. Could you start us off by reading a brief excerpt from the book? Sure. Rocco Bergamotti and Santo Vitari were Calabrians through and through. They'd grown up in the shadow of the mountains, children of the badlands behind Reggio. Rocco was the son of the capo of the Reggio Nandrina, the local unit of the Andrangata, a man known only to the locals as Lospetro, the Phantom. Few knew who he was, what he looked like, where he lived. Rocco was his visible lieutenant, holding the rank of Crimine, the senior officer delegated to pass on the orders of the local lord to his troops. Santo Vitari was, like every member of the Andrina, a blood relative of the Capo and his family, in his case a distant cousin from a family well down the ranks. They shared the same southern Mediterranean looks, swarthy with black wavy hair, dark darting eyes and lean muscled bodies that always looked ready for a fight. Rocco was an inch or two shorter and skinnier, a handsome man with a quick and easy smile, Santo laughed a lot, though his face was coarse and exaggerated, that of a peasant straight from the land. Almost everywhere they went there was a pair of designer sunglasses tucked into their black hair, even at night. They were known too, quietly acknowledged in cafes and bars, stores and garages, the length of the coast around Reggio, from Melito in the east on the Ionian Sea, to Banya Calabra in the north on the Tyrrhenian, just beyond the Strait of Messina. The third individual had found it difficult to take his attention away from the volcano across the water. The idea of a chasm in the earth, a living window into the fiery hell beneath the surface of the everyday world, continued to appall and fascinate him. He was a touch shorter and paler, just turned thirty, dark-haired and striking, with an accent quite unlike their sharp, coarse, guttural Calabrian, littered with dialect and terms from Greek. Nor was he fully a member of the Bergamotti or any other Andrina, not yet at least. There was an act required of him, a sacrifice demanded before he would be allowed to become a man of honour, a rank that would only be attained through the shedding of blood. Thanks, David. Now, without giving away too many plot details, could you put that section in context for our listeners? Yeah, this is right at the beginning of the story, where a couple of guys who appear to be policemen undercover appear to be about to perform a robbery. And it's a robbery upon a bar owned by the local crooks, which clearly is not a good idea. And um, these three guys, one of whom is himself not quite what it seems, are about to tackle those men and um, deal with them. When we last spoke about your 2015 novel, The Flood, uh, you said that you got the idea for it the way you did your other books by, I, I think you used the term, sort of mooching around. Yeah. Um, did the same thing happen here? Yeah, I, I am a serial moocher, uh, and Italy is a great place to mooch. Um, these are characters that I've written about a lot. This is the 10th book featuring Nick Costa and, and his cohorts, um, and I very much wanted it to be different to the others because there'd been a gap of eight or nine years and I didn't just want to go back to Rome which is where they normally played 
I wanted to go somewhere different. Um, so I went to a part of Italy that most people, including most Italians, really don't know, which is Calabria, which is in the toe. Uh, and it's fascinating, fascinating. It's not a particularly tourist destination, but it's an amazing part of the world and, and I hope provides a really unusual canvas for this story. Now, at the end of the book, you referred to some of the other books that you used as sort of inspirational resources. And the one I'd heard of before was Carlo Levy's uh, Christ Stopped at Eboli. Um, and in there, he has a, a, a brief sentence in which he refers to the, the setting of the Savage Shore as, no, quote, no one has come to this land except as an enemy, a conqueror, or a visitor devoid of understanding, end quote. No, the book was published in, the, in 1945. The Savage Shore setting is, is much more recent. Is it contemporary? It is, it is contemporary. Um, it's a wonderful, wonderful book, Levy. And one of his themes, and I think it's a theme of this book, is the abandonment of that part of Italy. It's called Christ Stopped at Eboli because the saying is that Christ didn't go any further south than this town called Eboli. So the Mezzogiorno, um, that bit of Italy has been left on its own to kind of run to its own rules and establish its own kind of society. It is its its own world. And the criminal society, the Andrangheta, which is one of the three crime families of Italy, is, is much different to the Mafia and the Cosa Nostra. It, it's almost a kind of social function. It's almost a kind of alternative government in many ways, which you know, raises questions, which I think Carlo Livi also attacked, was, you know, who's right? You know, if, if, if Rome and North have abandoned you, are you not actually entitled to form your own rules? I, I've noted that in the Times obituary for Carlo Levy, when the reporter for the Times wrote about the book, he referred to it as giving readers and said indeed most Italians a glimpse of, uh, quote, the underdevelopment in southern Italy, unquote. Um, so is that underdevelopment, is that sort of feeling of neglect something that's changed significantly since when Levy wrote? Um, very little. Very little, to be honest. I mean, you, you have to remember that this particular part of Italy, in a sense, isn't originally Italian. It was part of Magna Graecia. It was part of Greece's colonization of Italy before the Romans came along. So when you go into the villages where some of this story is set, people are speaking there a form of Greek, which is far closer to the language of Homer than you'll find spoken in modern Athens. So it's actually a different kind of world with different values um, and a lot of the modern world hasn't yet penetrated there it is still desperately poor in parts it's desperately beautiful as well i mean there are towns and cities that are used up in the hills there um, that anywhere else in italy would be if they're in tuscany would be world famous but because they're in calabria nobody knows about them so it is still a very neglected part of Italy um, and very much underdeveloped. And is it too much of an oversimplification to draw a connection between the fact that it is, I think you said, sort of desperately poor and the limits or the almost non-existence of having political power influence in the central Italian government? Uh, I think that's, that's very much a key part of it. You know, the 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 local warlords or gang lords, if you like, have always been more important in some ways than um, 
conventional politicians. You know, when Gary Boldy invaded Calabria as part of the reunification of Italy, he first had to get the permission of the local gang lords, just as the Americans, when they invaded Sicily during the Second World War, had to gain the permission of the Mafia. Um, so, you know, th there is this kind of moral ambivalence down there that you probably don't meet many other places in, in the modern developed world. And you chose an epigraph from St. Augustine's City of God, which seems to directly tie with the themes that you're talking about and the notion of the Andrangheta as sort of filling a social function. I'll just read the quote from uh, St. Augustine, quote, if justice is taken away, then what are states but gangs of robbers? For what are gangs of robbers themselves but little states? Can you just talk a little bit about what interested you about that quote and how you tied that into the theme of, of what is, uh, you know, a, a mystery crime thriller? Yeah, I, I, you know, I wanted to write a, a book that was not kind of mainstream. You know, there's not a lot of violence there's actually not a lot of conventional action in there, except when we're coming towards the climax. You know, I wanted to try to play with some social themes, and this idea of right and wrong um, really appealed to me down there, because most of the people in the story are trying to be someone else. The cops are down there undercover, trying to get the local lord out of there because supposedly he wants to turn state witness and give himself up. So they're having to pretend to be something they're not. But as the story develops, we realize that an awful lot of these people are a bit like players on an old Greek tragic stage. They are not themselves. They are having to perform parts rather than be their, their true their true selves. Um, so I, I was really interested in, in playing with that idea of justice and identity and how difficult and in the end how tragic it is if you conform to what the world wants of you rather than be yourself um, as an individual. Uh, and I just felt this, this area and these conflicts down there between state and crime between ordinary people who are torn between the two, um, you know, was a great kind of canvas for that kind of tale. And you touched upon this a little bit before, but I'm wondering if you can amplify on the differences between the th three major uh, Italian organized crime groups. You mentioned uh, the Mafia, the Camorra, and I'm not going to necessarily pronounce this right, but the Andragata, who are at the heart of this book. Andragata, yeah. Um, one of the problems with this is that because nobody knows this part of the world, I had to try to find a way to provide context for the reader so they, they actually understood how, how different it was. And what happens in the book is that there's this kind of fake old tour book, uh, like a guidebook, um, and we have extracts from it that illuminate that particular part of the story. So the very opening of the book is the story, the myth of how these crime organizations came together and the myth which you will hear all over Calabria and other parts of the south is that they came out of kind of holy assassins for the Catholic Church in Spain um, during about the 8th or 9th century when they were fighting Muslims invading Spain uh, and they were assassins they were going around killing people all the time and they turned into crime gangs and eventually in the 17th century the Vatican turned against them uh, and three brothers fled from Barcelona, 
wound up first of all in Sardinia, where they started becoming very successful criminals. Eventually realized they were going to be too big to um, to do all this alone. So they split up and one of them went to Sicily and formed what we now know as the Casa Nostra. One of them went to Naples and formed the Camorra. And the third one went to Reggio in Calabria and formed the Andrangata. And supposedly they carried this magical um, uh, bracelet that was given to um, the, the, the Order of Assassins by the Virgin Mary in a dream. And supposedly there is um, a chapel in the hills of uh, Calabria where this magical bracelet is kept. And actually it's true that every year there is a meeting of the crime gangs at a secret chapel in the Aspromonte Mountains um, where they worship or do business or whatever, no one really knows, just that the police don't go anywhere near it. And there's a tendency even now for, for Westerners uh, and certainly Americans to, when they hear the words organized crime, to really think of it as an exclusively Italian phenomenon. Um, so I, I, you're a native Briton, is that correct? I am, yeah. Yeah. So how would you compare the way organized crime operates and developed in Italy with the way it has in the UK? Um, I, I think it's totally different. You know, organized crime in Italy, first of all, is an international business and it's run as a business. It is worldwide. The Andrangheta own vast swathes of property in Brussels. They have interests in um, some large public markets in Australia. I'm sure they've got quite a bit going on in America too. Um, they are crime corporations. Um, Organised crime in, in England, I suspect, is just a little bit primitive and based on thuggery, really, rather than anything else. Um, and the, you know, these, these are basically crime corporations, corporations working on an international level, putting their fingers into everything from drugs to prostitution to mainstream business. You know, I mean, this is kind of touched upon in the book, but there's often more money to be made for these guys through legitimate businesses where they can funnel laundered money than from the risky stuff of robbing banks and, and all the rest of it, although that certainly does go on. So you referred before to the fact that you were returning to Nick Costa and uh, his supporting cast of characters after a break. Uh, he first appeared 15 years ago in 2003. Uh, how do you feel he's changed from uh, the way he was in A Season for the Dead? I think he's become a bit more worldly. You know, in A Season for the Dead, I wanted to write about somebody who, who was, you know, not out of central casting. He's extremely naive um, and he's kind of a moral fulcrum for the story because he reminds the other cops of what they should be doing. That moral fulcrum thing has not changed, but he's certainly tougher than he was in the early days. Um, but he's still developing. And, and in this story you know he's the one who has to go undercover he has to pretend to be um, a crook he has to go into the gang and convince this this um, gang lord that they really can get him out safely so he you know he's forced to do things that he really really doesn't want to do so he's tested quite a bit um and i don't think he would have survived that 15 years ago in this you know he he, he can 
he can hold his own really but um and it's really interesting, you know, when you're writing about characters over that period of time um, to see how they develop. The, the funny thing, you know, when you write a series is time because, um, you know, over 15 years, you can't have them get 15 years older because half of them would have to have been retired. So, so Costa gets kind of slowly older over the pace of 15 years, perhaps three or four years. Whereas the older cops are in the story, they, they don't age at all. So it's just a completely artificial novel timing, really. And what led you to take such a long break uh, from writing Costa between the ninth and the tenth books? I decided to take a break from Costa because I, I wanted other challenges. You know, I was asked to adapt this the Danish TV series The Killing. I did some Shakespeare adaptations um, and I did some books set in Amsterdam because I, I, I didn't want to get um, channeled into just writing one book a year with the same cast as so often happens with series. I, you know, I think as a writer, you really have to be challenged with every book and it should never ever feel easy. Um, so I, I just wanted to make my life harder. But I always wanted to come back. I mean, the first 20,000 words of this book I wrote eight, nine years ago. Um, it's just been sitting there waiting for me to, to come back to it. Um, and, I, you know, I, I feel really fresh about it. And it was great to take that kind of break. And um, uh, I, I hope the book reads, you know, not like um, a kind of template series book. It's very, very different to the ones that went before. Uh, I think it's gentler. I think it's um, got more suspense. And I think the suspense comes out of the characters and the situation they're in rather than, you know, the standard tropes of crime fiction, which are, are violence and, um, and big, loud action. Well, thank you, David, for spending some time with us today. Uh, the book again is David Eusen's The Savage Shore from Severn House. Thanks for joining us, and please join us again soon for the next PW Litcast. <laughs>